Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. The subject of today's story put up the most dominant display of any horse in a European classic in the whole of the 20th century, but he was more than a one-hit wonder. Many horses, even the great ones, have their quirks, and some of them are explored in these podcasts. Tudor Minstrels was an extreme version of one that is not as uncommon as you might think. He couldn't run left-handed. It's just as well, of course, that he wasn't trained in the US, as then he and his brilliance would have been as lost to history as a cough in a hurricane. Fortunately, he had enough straight and right-handed tracks in the UK to show the racing world that, on the right course, at the right distance, there was essentially no beating him. Tudor Minstrel's dam, Sansonet, had been passed down into ownership to John Arthur Dewar, whose uncle Thomas was a huge whiskey magnate. Hence, Dewar Jr. ended up with the young colt, whom he sent into training with one of England's most successful trainers, Fred Darling. Successful, of course, doesn't mean nice. As noted under Sun Chariot's story, words used to describe this interwar training colossus were notable in their polarity. Genius, greatest, and record-breaking were all used, and true, as were ruthless, friendless, and weird. Utterly lacking in emotional intelligence, he may have been, but Darling was also respected, and he saw that Tudor Minstrel was maturing early as a two-year-old and plotted an ambitious path for him. Tudor Minstrel's sire was Owen Tudor, winner of the 1941 Epsom Derby, whilst his dam sire, San Savino, won the same race in 1924. To that end, all assumed that he would have been imbued with enough stamina to eventually do likewise. Hold that thought. The Brown Colts' first two forays onto the course, in 1946, were in Bath and Salisbury, where, ridden as he always would be by the seemingly eternal champion UK jockey Gordon Richards, he trotted away from the opposition, showing that he had bags of potential. He was then, in June, thrown in at the deep end of Royal Ascot's Coventry Stakes, where, unfazed, he again put four lengths between himself and the best of his peers. He confirmed this form the following month in the equally prestigious National Breeders' Produce Stakes at Sandown, winning by the same distance. Interestingly, despite having such an exciting colt, and it only being July, Darling decided that that would be that for the season, which still had months to go. Tudor Minstrel would still easily top the end-of-season free handicap ratings. At three, although powerful and muscular, Tudor Minstrel hadn't grown enormously in height and he maintained the ever-so-slightly short-legged build reminiscent of his champion grandsire Hyperion. He negated this, however, with exceptional balance and bulging hindquarters. With the 1947 2000 guineas at Newmarket as his first main target, he returned to Bath for his seven-furlong warm-up race, which he won with consummate ease, priming him perfectly for the first Colts classic of the season. And so the stage was set, for what many commentators present, as well as many who weren't, swore to their dying day was the most dominant display in a European classic race in the whole of the 20th century.
Tudor minstrel took off at the start and piled it on and on and on over Newmarket's straight mile. It was by no means an inferior year of colts, yet the son of Owen Tudor, displaying astonishing speed, balance and energy, crushed his opponents physically by halfway, and most likely mentally too by the end. Long before he reached the post, Richards had stopped pushing and was seen by all to be patting his colt and even playfully tweaking his ears, unheard of in most races, let alone a classic. The official margin of victory was eight lengths, but photographic evidence shows it to be a bare minimum of 11 and very likely more. Reliable eyewitness reports backed this up, all agreeing that if Richards had bothered to make any effort in the last two furlongs, the winning distance would easily have been 20 lengths. And so the drooling reports and accounts started flooding in, starting with Richards. Tudor minstrel galloped us all stone cold, he said. I have had the easiest ride of my life. Author Quinton Gibley later wrote, We have all seen races, which were a foregone conclusion some way from home, but it was inconceivable that the 2,000 guineas should have been over and done with before the horses had travelled half a mile. The Daily Graphic columnist Jim Crack wrote something more straightforward, the most astonishing classic victory I have ever seen. Meanwhile, Phil Bull, who had recently founded horse racing data provider Timeform and whose mercurial write-ups were matched only by the stringent adherence to what the data was telling him, was equally unequivocal. So far as I know, I have never yet described any horse as a world beater, but with a reservation about distance, I think I'm prepared to do so to describe Tudor Minstrel. The memory of Tudor Minstrel strolling home the length of a street in front of everything else will remain with me for the rest of my life. There were elements of the day that were to be eerily emulated 64 years later by Frankel. Not only did the latter also put on an incredible 2,000 guineas display, but it was set against the backdrop of a trainer enduring extreme ill health. Then it would be the great Henry Cecil. Here it was Darling who also had to miss some of his great horse's performances in person and would sell his stable at the end of the season as a consequence. Even so, amongst this near-hagiographic response to what had been a mind-blowing display, the true clue was hidden in the canny Phil Bull's write-up. He thought the colt was simply too fast to be as effective over the mile and a half of Epsom's derby. Indeed, he thought he might even be better suited to seven furlongs than a full mile. Nevertheless. By early June, the mesmerised public were having none of it, and backed him down to be the shortest price favourite for the Derby in 40 years. Not least as his pedigree suggested stamina wouldn't be a problem. What the public didn't know was what had happened two weeks earlier. Ever the perfectionist, Darling had built a left-handed track within his training grounds at Beckhampton, specifically for potential Derby horses to practice on. Although he had twice won at Bath, Tudor Minstrel now decided that he simply wasn't going to run left-handed and kept forcing himself to go right. After a training run, Richards jumped off in shock, telling Darling, this fellow's action is all right. He can't go on to the other leg. If he does, he's all at sea. Thinking it might pass, they kept their revelations to themselves. The miserable and cold day of the Epsom Derby itself, the first iteration of the old race ever held on a Saturday, was a fair reflection of Tudor Minstrel's and Gordon Richard's experience that day. The angry colt fought from the very start, 
mouth wide open, head almost at right angles, and shooting off to the right whenever the master jockey let him try to settle. Seeing a nightmare unfold, he had no choice but to push him to the front and hope his stamina held out. It didn't, with the colt's energy having already been spent. Tasting defeat for the first time, he finished a forlorn fourth, the race being won emphatically by French outsider Pearl Diver. The recriminations began almost immediately from the disbelieving public. Richards explained what he had been through and stated clearly that my colt just could not stay. But the newspapers the following day were still in a state of unforgiving shock. Consider this slice of hyperbole from the news of the world. At eight minutes past three yesterday afternoon, a song died in the heart of Britain. On the muddied field of Epsom lay buried many million hopes. The hope that at long last our tarnished turf prestige would shine again and that we should be back on the racing map. Worthy of note in those melodramatic words were both the astonishing levels of expectation which that 2,000 guineas victory had brought on, as well as the navel-gazing attitude of the British racing scene at the time, which had until recently considered itself all-dominant. Richards, meanwhile, started receiving letters, phone calls and more from angry, unforgiving punters looking for a scapegoat for this whole unfortunate debacle. Darling wisely decided to revert Tudor Minstrel later in the month, both to a mile and a right-handed track, namely Ascot, for the royal meeting's St James Palace Stakes. Unsurprisingly, the colt absolutely trotted up, showing that he was as good as there had ever been over the distance. But in the Eclipse Stakes, over ten furlongs in July, on a soft sandown track, the stamina again gave way, as he was outstayed by Migoli, who would win the following year's Arc de Triomphe. The public was now finally understanding that the colt was just too fast for middle distances. He finished off his season and his career back at Ascot's Mile in the Group 1 Knights Royal Stakes, which would mutate later into the Queen Elizabeth II Stakes. And again he won from Vagabond, some claiming it was a very cosy victory, others that he was pushed at the end. Regardless, as Tudor Minstrel was becoming more headstrong, it was decided to retire him to stud. He would achieve a rating over a mile that only the mighty Brigadier Gerard would match in the 20th century. And it came as a surprise to few that, although he sired a Kentucky Derby winner in Tommy Lee, almost all his other offspring were notable purely for one thing, speed. To find out more about Tudor Minstrel and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening. <laughs>